people. And we count it a privilege to be together on this mission that he has given us as his people. As you know, if you've been in our church for a while, we're going through the book of Acts. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts. And, and today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 14. So if you'll turn with us there to Acts chapter 14, and then let's read together along with Adam as he reads the scripture for us from Acts 14. This is God's word. Both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled from Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, 
they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to <clears throat> Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done to them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God of all creation, God of heaven and of earth, we come to you. And we thank you that we can come to you through Jesus Christ, your son, that you've, you've made a way for us to approach you, the high and most holy one, that you have reconciled us to you through your son, that you have forgiven us of our sins because of his sacrifice for us, that you have made us at one with you. So God, we approach you, we come to you, Lord, in confidence, knowing that you are now our Father for those who have placed their faith in you, and you desire to give your children good gifts. So this morning, we ask you for good gifts. I ask that you would speak to and through me, Lord. I pray that you would speak to your people. I pray that you would enliven our hearts and minds, that you would enlighten us by the light of your holy word. And God, I pray that you would enable us to apply your word to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all love stories of bravery and we all love stories of good overcoming evil. We love stories of the underdog overcoming all obstacles against all hopes, against all odds and challenges to defeat the enemy. And that's why so many people love all kinds of different movies and stories that come out that talk about how the underdog is overcoming. And, and my family, although my kids haven't read it yet, we love, Julie and I love the story of the Lord of the Rings. And it's a great story, this trilogy of this, this underdog, really. Well, he's not a dog, he's a hobbit. But he's a small, he's a wee little man. And this, this hobbit, he is seemingly the most unlikely character and he is facing a huge challenge. He has, along with a bunch of his friends, been given a task. He's been put on a long and grueling mission to take this one ring of power that can, that can be used for good or for evil, to control people. And he's been given this mission to, instead of using that ring of power, to destroy that because no one is able to, to endure the temptations of that ring of power. And so he's been given this mission and he's, He's supposed to take this ring to the gates of the enemy and to cast it in the fires of the, uh, I think it's called the Cracks of Doom, to destroy it. And he goes and defeats this great enemy, Sauron. And it's a, it's a great tale, all three of these volumes that tell this account of bravery in the face of danger. They tell a story of resolve in, in, the, in the face of overwhelming odds. And he carries out this noble mission despite opposition and trials. And I think we love stories like that. We like that story because it speaks to something inside of us. Each and every one of us has, has been given a purpose to live. We've been given a mission. Or if you're not yet a Christian, you don't know what that mission is that we were meant to live for. 
But as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been, been given a mission to live for. We've been given something bigger than us. Something grander. Something that's actually far too difficult for any one of us to accomplish on our own. And yet we've been put on this mission. And so I think we, we love seeing stories like this because it's inspiring to, to see people who are committed to their cause and to each other. And they don't only defend each other. They help them succeed, each other succeed in their mission. And it's a compelling story, really. The Lord of the Rings, if you haven't read it, you can go and read those stories. They're compelling, but they're fiction, right? What we read about today is real life. Because really, we we need stories. We don't need stories that are fiction that we can't relate to. We need stories of real life. What does it really look like? What does it really look like to, to live sold out? What does it really look like to, to live constantly on the, on the mission that God's calling you to? What, is it, what does it look like? How do they do it? And what kinds of troubles do they face? And so Luke, really God, the Holy Spirit, has given us this account. He's, he's given us the account of real life to see exactly what God intends for us to do in the face of opposition. Now, we're not all called to the exact same way of carrying out our mission like the Apostle Paul was. We're not called to go and visit multiple towns throughout the upstate. We're not called to, to go down to, up to Gaffney or down to Anderson and, 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 and be itinerant, but we are called to the same purpose. And so we've been given this account because I think we need to see what does it look like to live out real life? Because real life's difficult. What does it look like to live out our real lives with a real mission and yet continue on? The story of Paul and Barnabas is a story of triumph in the midst of trials, isn't it? It's a story of acceptance and rejection at the same time. And I think we can relate to this better because that's what we face too. In in our daily lives, we face both rejection and acceptance when we go and proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ. And and, and even in the same day, you might speak to somebody about Jesus and, and they seem to respond. And then someone else you talk to not only rejects you, but maybe they oppose you. I think God has this account for us that we can be encouraged and have faith that God is at work in the midst of trials and even when there's ups and downs in life, even when we face opposition, he still will enable us to carry out our mission. We also have this account to see that we're called to live for something bigger than us. But something that requires all of us. We're called to, to God's grand purpose and, and what God has always been about doing all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike is God has always been about calling a people to himself to make followers ultimately of Jesus who live for him in everything. And, and I think that the main idea that I want us to see that God wants us to see is that our mission is to make followers of Jesus. That's our vision. It's to, it's to make followers of Jesus from this passage. It's to make followers of Jesus who live for God in everything. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing, isn't it? Yes, they are missionaries, so their life looks different. But when they go back to the church in Antioch, as they do at the end of this passage, they're still living for him in everything. And all throughout the book of Acts, you can see so many different accounts that Luke is weaving together. And he's not doing this so that we worship Paul and Barnabas. You see, the book of Acts is not given to us so that we esteem all these great heroes of the past. It's given to be relevant to our lives today. So we say, no, how did the early church live? 
in light of the mission that they're called, they've been called to by God. What did it look like to live passionately for him in the midst of the crud of life? This is the three principles we're going to look at from this passage today. And this first principle that we're going to, we're going to see in this passage, it's, 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 it's driven from the passage, and it's that followers of Jesus, they live bravely on mission. Followers of Jesus, they live bravely on mission. We, now, that's not a point that Luke makes directly, but that is a point that make, Luke makes indirectly because he's setting up these accounts to show us what does it look like to live on mission. And, and, and he's saying that, you know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can live bravely on mission because God, Paul wasn't somehow supernatural in his own ability. He was supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for Jesus. He was just a mere man. And we see that later on in the passage. He runs out in the middle of the crowd and he's trying to convince them, I'm just a mere man. See, I've got five, five fingers. I've got, I've got a body just like you. I'm just a man. And so often when we look at the book of Acts, we can look at our heroes of the faith and think, well, they're not like us. We could never be like that. We could never be like Paul. Now, you might not have the same task and role that Paul does, but you have the same Jesus you have the same Savior. You have the same Holy Spirit, not only that empowered Paul, but that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so that is what enabled Paul to live bravely on his mission. Don't forget who Paul was. He was a legalistic Jew, and he was a persecutor of Christians. He was living with confidence in himself and his own ability to keep the law. Maybe you grew up that way. I love hearing Vera's story this morning about how she grew up in a Christian home. Really, and just kind of went through the motions until she encountered the mercy and grace of God. You see, Paul encountered the mercy and grace of God. He was, he was living for himself. He was kind of going through these legalistic motions. He was persecuting the church. He encounters the grace and mercy of God. And he was so changed and so affected by God's forgiveness of him, who was the persecutor of Christians, he who stood by when Stephen was stoned is so affected now by God's grace that he's living passionately for him. I think just thinking about the Apostle Paul is meant to make us ask ourselves, what are we affected by? Are we affected by God's grace? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Do you see that he has made you a new creation? you see what he's forgiven you of? Do you understand the mercy and grace of God? Because all throughout the New Testament and Paul's writings, you can see that he was, he was always hammering one thing. It was the good news about Jesus and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. He actually said once that I, I decided to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why was that? Because it was the best news ever for him. For you and for I, the question is, is it the best news ever for us? That's what's compelling to 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 make us live in a manner that we stand bravely in the face of everything else because we realize this is the most important thing in life. Paul was gripped by the grace of God. As we see that, we're we're meant to ask ourselves, what are we we gripped by? What are we living for? Are we single-minded in our devotion and living for him? Paul and Barnabas are living on this mission to make Jesus known and they're in the midst of this missionary journey we've been reading over the last few weeks about the, this missionary journey they're carrying throughout the, the kind of the, the corner of the Middle East. They're on a 1,500 mile or so journey. They're nearing the end of this two-year period. In the first verse, we can see that Paul and Barnabas, they're traveling this well-known Roman road of commerce. They're, 
They entered this old city of Iconium. It was an isolated city. It was above the rest of the area. It was high on a plateau over the plains of what's today modern Turkey. They kind of were the self-governing city. They weren't, you'll see why that comes into play later, is they they had the, the guts to actually create a plan to stone Paul. They would never have done that if there was a heavy Roman presence there, if they were if they were worried about Roman rule, but they weren't. They were kind of this independent city, although they had a Roman representative. And, and so Paul and Barnabas, they go into this synagogue in Iconium to preach. And that was a pattern for Paul and Barnabas because they knew that the gospel, the good news, came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles as the Jews rejected. And they wanted to, to have the same pattern that God had to go and make appeals to his people. And so it says they spoke so convincingly, they spoke so effectively that a great number of people who heard the message, both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, they believed in Jesus. And what were they speaking so effectively about? They were speaking this message. They were single-minded in their mission to declare the good news. And then in verse 2, it tells us that even though some received their message, others did not. And so some Jews, they rose up against Paul and Barnabas. And we see this pattern throughout the book of Acts. If you ever have read the book of Acts start to finish, you're going to see that Luke has these repeating patterns all throughout. And he's got these repeating patterns of how the good news is preached and some respond, but then there's opposition and persecution. Despite the word and the acts of the messenger and the preachers are forced to flee and then they continue to preach in a new setting, the gospel cannot be squashed the gospel is undaunted the good news of jesus christ cannot be stopped and so you see these patterns so that the readers understand that in the midst of opposition we don't stop sharing the message of the good news but in the midst of opposition we continue to share the good news no matter what comes and you're going to see that this these trials this pattern really it's not just true in the lives of the disciples If you've been a Christian, you'll understand that you're going to face these same kinds of trials and patterns where you're going to be proclaiming the good news. Some are going to respond. Others won't. Some will oppose you. You might experience persecution because of your faith. But we're to continue undaunted on our mission. We're called to be committed to living on this mission that we've been given when it's hard and when it's inconvenient. We need to know that as we too proclaim this message about Jesus you can be confident that the response is not up to you. Some people might respond by God's grace. Many will. Some people might not. Some people might oppose you. You might have a classmate that opposes you, somebody in your neighborhood who opposes you. You might have a coworker, a boss, a friend, a family member who opposes you. And yet we're called to be continually faithful. Don't get discouraged by seeing people respond negatively. God's still at work. God's still at work. God's like the greatest of all generals overseeing an entire war. And sometimes we're like this, this lowly private on the field who can only, we can only see our own battle. We can only see the, the, the thing right before us. We can only see what enemy we are facing. And we fail to see that God is actually, actually orchestrating not only our entire life, but all of history to carry out his purposes and his mission. And sometimes we can forget that. 
We can forget that God has an overarching plan, that his message will never be stopped, no matter what trials we face. Ours is only to respond to him in faithfulness because he has given his life for us. Because he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, he's made us new. We no longer have to appease him. We don't have to live to earn his favor. Now we're free to say, God, I want to live for you in everything. Sometimes we don't understand how our contribution makes a difference, but God does, and he's, he's orchestrating everything in our lives toward his great ends. He, knows, he doesn't just know how it fits in. He's working in us and through us, and he uses our proclamation to carry out his mission. Luke wants us to see that, and he wants to see wherever the gospel mission is carried, though we're, we're going to face opposition. He tells us the unbelieving Jews, they stirred up the Gentiles, they poisoned their minds against the brothers. They were convincing the brothers that what they were saying was not really true. They were speaking ill of Barnabas and Paul. These Jews, the, the wording is actually not just they were unbelieving, they were refusing to believe. They were refusing to obey the word of truth. They were enemies of the gospel. They were inciting the people against Paul and Barnabas. They were instigating and stirring up the people so they wouldn't believe. But notice, though, it says the disciples didn't leave the town because of this. Instead, look at verse 3. It says, so, in light of the persecution they faced, so they remained there for a long time. So they remained there. They saw that, wait a minute, just because we face opposition doesn't mean that we stop proclaiming. Doesn't mean that we move on. When we face difficulties and challenges and trials. They didn't assume it was a sign from God they should leave. They stayed, they spoke for the Lord, they bore witness of the word of grace, it says. And then God blessed them. God granted to them signs and wonders. Why is that? It's because God is interested in the word of his grace being proclaimed. Think about what you're living for, what, what I'm living for, what we're living for. Are you living for a job? Are you living for family? Are you living for making a lot of money for fame? Are you living just to kind of get through life? Well, God's given us a purpose that's far greater than that. He's given us the purpose to carry out the word of his grace so that we can tell others about who Jesus is so that they too might become disciples of Jesus Christ. And he's, he's given us this, this mission to carry out his word. Well, it says that some of the people sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. And there's a conflict happening here that it is, is more than the conflict between mere humans. This is an eternal conflict. This is a con- conflict of light against the gospel. I mean, light of the gospel against the traditions of men. That's the same kind of conflict that we face every day. We, we face this conflict every day as we talk to people who say, No, I'm really good. I don't need Jesus. I'm okay. A lot of people think that because they're confident in their own ability. They're confident in their own works. People think that, no, I'm good enough. I'm all right. And that's the same conflict that they faced. And, and we have to show people, no, you're, none of us on our, on our own is good enough. We need to be rescued. We need the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that he came to die for people who think they're good enough, who could never be good enough to be with God on their own because to come before God... We have to be perfect. Jesus came so that he would be perfect in our place. So that we don't have to be. And so they they were battling these Jews who said that 
They were good enough without Jesus. And then you see this population that resorts to mob violence and the townspeople, they got so enraged by the message, it became such a socially serious threat that they want to kill Paul and Barnabas. Thankfully, I don't think that anybody's ever wanted to do that to me as I've shared the gospel message. Now, somebody might have been really angry with me and you, you might have had people be really angry with you, but, but most of us have never faced that people want to kill us for real and that they're plotting how to kill us because of this message. But these, these apostles, these men are facing this crowd that wants to kill them. But they learned of it ahead of time, it says, and they fled to Lystra and Derby. There were some cities about 18 miles south and about 15 miles southwest. They were backwater towns. They were far enough away. By, for that day, they traveled largely on foot. They would have been a couple days travel away. So it would have been far enough away that they could flee and they wouldn't know where they had gone to. So Paul and Barnabas don't want to stop telling the message in this region that they're in. But so they go to Lystra, they go to Derby. It was really well known as a, as a backwater town. People were maybe not exactly pro-Roman government. They were independent. You know, they, had the, they believed in the right to bear arms, right? Maybe it was like Pumpkin Town or Pickens for us. I don't know. Maybe you live in Pumpkin Town or Pickens. So they go to these towns, and, and the funny thing is, we don't, we don't hear it in this account, but, but later on, we, we learn that Timothy actually is from Lystra, and I wonder if Timothy first heard the good news on this trip. If he first heard the good news, his mom, his, his grandmother did, I don't know, but there's a time to stand ground for, and there's a time when it's foolish to stick around, so the apostles leave so they can be more effective on the mission that God's called them to. They weren't being cowardly by fleeing. They weren't getting killed is what they were doing. They were on a mission and their mission wasn't done yet. So they're wise to carry out their mission as outlying cities and countries. And they didn't stop. Even though they weren't well received, they didn't say, you know what? We're going to stop doing that because, boy, that's dangerous. People might reject us if we, if we keep telling them about Jesus. If we actually act like we believe what we say we do, then people might reject us. You might be tempted to think that way too. If I actually acted like I really believe what I say I believe, people probably will reject me. So let me tone it down a bit, right? Let me be socially acceptable. Let me, let me not be so bold. Let me not be so brave. Let me not be so upfront. Let me kind of slip it in casually. Now, it's not wrong to not be in your face. It's not wrong to look for key ways to share the gospel, to, to not let ourselves be offensive, but yet let the good news of the message of Jesus Christ, if that's offensive, then we can let that stand on its own. But there's also a place, I think, in our very comfortable society that we live in. I think where as a church we need to be challenged, where I need to be challenged is not to get comfortable and complacent, to not just kind of live in the shadows, if you will, because we've faced opposition. Now God may shut some doors for us that we no longer can share with people, but let's not stop talking about who Jesus is. We see the disciples did not stop talking. They, they moved on to these other cities. And then the second principle that we're going to see, that we're going to look at, is that these followers of Jesus, they were living boldly. They weren't just living boldly for themselves as they carry out the missions. They were living boldly for God's glory, no matter the cost. They didn't seek their own glory. They didn't seek the easy path. They didn't seek to become famous. 
They didn't seek to just fit in, to have an easy life. They weren't, they weren't after the American dream. So Luke shares this account. He tells us about how there was a man who'd been crippled since he was born. He was unable to use his feet. He'd never walked a day in his life. And Paul is out speaking in the open, and, and it, it's this great picture. He sees this man, and this man's looking at him intently, and then Paul kind of prophetically understands this man wants to be healed, and he's got faith to be healed. And so in the middle of Paul speaking, he stops, and then he says really loudly, it would have kind of surprised everybody around him, he says to this guy, stand upright on your feet. That would have been a little shocking in the midst of a discourse. They were used to these, these logical discourses, and Paul stops, he stares at this man, and he says this really loudly, stand upright. And then the man springs up, and he starts walking. Sometimes we become too familiar with the power of God in, in, the, in the New Testament. We become too familiar. Our, our youngest girl, Eva, she just turned one year old a couple weeks ago. She's trying to walk right now. At, at, at about nine months, she, she kind of began to pull herself up, and a month later, she was finally able to pull herself up into her feet. She had enough muscles for that. She was able to stand on her own. She was able to hold on to things. Now she's kind of able to cruise and and for the first time, just a couple days ago, she kind of took eight, eight steps. It was the most she's ever taken on her own to me. And we all clapped, and we thought, this is wonderful, and this is great. And we keep practicing with her, but she's not quite ready to balance and walk on her own. It's this mixture of both muscle development that still needs to happen, a lack of coordination, and a lack of confidence that's holding her back. It's no small thing for a child to learn how to walk. We would be amazed if a kid came out of the womb and just pops up and says, hey, how's it going? They could walk and talk. You know, we'd be like, oh my gosh, something's wrong here. Something is just as wrong with this guy popping up. He was probably well known in the town. It was a very small town. He, he was crippled in his feet. He, he could not walk since birth. He had no muscles to be able to walk. There's no development, no coordination, no balance. He had no, no way to know how to do that. He had no confidence on his own, and yet he stands upright immediately through the power of God. Now, why did God do that? God did that not so that people were amazed at Paul's power to heal people. It was so that people would be amazed that the one Paul spoke of has the power to give new life. That the one Paul spoke of has the power to make dead things alive to restore the crippled, to make the lame to walk, not just physically, but more importantly, to make those who are crippled, who are lame, who are unable to walk spiritually, who have no muscles, no ability to stand up and to make us alive. And so he was doing it to demonstrate that his word, his word was true. And so this remarkable miracle happens, and this is no mere magic trick, and they realize that these were men who had real power. And something you need to know is a little background in this story is that this area of Lystra and Derby, they were enamored with these Greek gods. They had a temple lot right outside the city gates dedicated to the gods Zeus and Hermes. And there was accounts back in those days, somewhere roughly about 50 years before Paul and Barnabas visited the city, uh, there was a, a story written of strangers appearing and, and seeking refuge in a thousand homes. It was actually supposedly Zeus and Hermes seeking refuge in a thousand different homes. And 
and yet they were not accepted. And everyone except for this one poor old couple rejected them and they went into this poor old couple and supposedly they created the temple that's outside the city gates. It, was, it turned their cottage into a temple. I think the, the priest of Zeus probably made the story up um, to get people to come out there. And so people thought, oh no, what, what, if, what if this is the gods come down as strangers again? And so it's, it's, really, it's really not surprising their reaction when they're so steeped in, in mythology and so they want to make sure that they don't invoke the anger of the gods and they start shouting that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. This must be Zeus and Hermes. Come again here. They don't have any other category. They didn't know the one true God has true power. And so when they saw what Paul did, they start yelling in their own language, the Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And, and you, you, you get the idea why Luke tells us they said it in Lyconia is, is Paul and Barnabas didn't have the idea of what they were saying at first. But then it says, but when they heard of it, when they finally got it, maybe they asked the interpreter, what are they saying? Why are they all screaming like this? Something's really weird here. What's happening? You know, there's a bunch of commotion around. The high priest, the local temple of Zeus, he brings out some oxen. He starts throwing some flower garlands around their necks. He's honoring them as gods. They're like, what is going on here? Why are they bringing the animals out? It's a little weird. And when they understand, though, it tells you their reaction, and, and it's important to see their reaction. It, it really spoke of their motivation. They weren't looking for glorifying themselves. They weren't looking at drawing attention to themselves. And they rush out in the middle of the crowds, and, and, they, and they wanted to stop the people, and they tore their clothes. Now, now, back in that day, in case you're wondering, what in the world is it about tearing clothes in the Bible? Why are they tearing their clothes? Well, in that day, clothes were really valuable, and you, and you couldn't just go down to the local stuff mart and buy a tunic. You, know? you couldn't just go down to the, uh, the, the Lystra corny quickie, corner quickie mart and, and, and get your clothes. They didn't have those. They had to be handmade. They took a lot of time. They were very valuable. They often only had one or two tunics at the, at the most, and especially in an agrarian society like this. I mean, they're living in Pumpkin Town. They didn't have a lot. And so they tear their clothes. They're kind of expressing this this deep grief, they're making a visible sacrifice of sorts, they're, they're ripping this important, expensive possession, they're demonstrating their sorrow. Paul and Barnabas, they're upset. You see, their whole mission is to glorify God by telling them about the person of Jesus Christ, by making the good news of Jesus Christ known so that people would be reconciled to God. And it seems that their whole mission, their whole purpose, the, their desire to glorify God is just unraveling. For them to be mistaken of gods, it'd be a failure, and to accept that would be blasphemy. And so you think, well, wait a minute, what if, what if, so what? So what if they, they thought that they were gods? Maybe they could use that to their advantage, right? Maybe they shouldn't have run out there. Maybe they should, yeah, you know, thank you for that. Yes, there is something truly great about us, but no, no, it's not really. Let me tell you about God. They knew that God's glory was far more important. They didn't want to live for their own glory. They didn't want to live for themselves. They didn't want to get acclaim. They, they weren't just trying to avoid getting stoned by accepting the worship and then later pointing them the right way. That would have been a temptation. They couldn't receive the worship of men because only God's to be worshipped and they were living for his glory, not their own. And so they go to the crowd and they cry out and they, they tell the crowds, no, we're really, we're just men. See, look, 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 look we count all of our fingers. We're just men. 
And then he goes on to explain that if God, that, that God is involved, and he, he does something interesting here, and this is something important for us to know. He, he's aware of who he's speaking to, and so he contextualizes the message that he's giving. And, and all throughout the book of Acts, you see that they speak to different people in different ways. These are, these are not people who are versed in the Old Testament. So he doesn't start off by sharing scriptural proofs about who Jesus is. But he starts by looking to their own background, to their agrarian society, to they would have been familiar with agriculture and the seasons and things like that. They wouldn't have known the scriptures. So he, he begins by pointing to this general revelation of God. He says, you know. You know that there must be a creator. You see that there's seasons and there's, he gives you food and gladness and provides for you. And he explains that God is the one involved in and he says that we're just men bringing you the good news. You can turn away from vain idols of Greek gods that aren't really alive. So he's saying, you know, you, you think Zeus and Hermes are alive. They're not really alive. They're, they're dead statues in a temple. But let me tell you about the true and living God. You can turn from these vain, vain idols to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. He's making sure people don't worship him. You see, Paul's not anything. He can't save anyone. Same way, we're not anything. We can't save anyone. But God, the maker of heaven and earth, he is the one that we can, we can have a relationship with. He's the one that we can turn to and turn from our idols. And God can save. He's, he's the only one who can save. And, and God is the only the one who's anything. And so Paul points them to God as their only hope and help. And then Paul kind of explains to them that God's their creator, the sustainer of life. And then he kind of gets cut short. He was explaining who they were, what their mission was. He has a hard time persuading the crowds. He can just barely keep them from sacrificing for them. And then what's really astounding is just how fickle these crowds are. Well, if you're not Zeus and Hermes, and then you're not some enlightened Jews, as they're going to find out in a minute, the Jews don't like them either. Well, if you're neither accepted by us, and you're not Zeus and Hermes, and you're not accepted by the Jews, then you must be false prophets. And so somehow, this is kind of crazy, somehow these, these Jews from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, they find out where Paul has fled, fled to, and, and since they couldn't carry out their plan to discredit and kill him there, they came to Lystra. These, these people were determinedly against them, weren't they? They, they pursued them 55 miles southwest, which is a very long distance back in that day. And so there's a lot of irony here, too. Remember who Paul was. Paul was a Jewish pursuer of Christians, pursuing them to kill them. And now what's happening is these Jews are pursuing Paul as a Christian to kill him. And so we see that Paul is, is stoned. Stoning that day was very brutal. Everyone would pick up rocks that they could hurl, and they would hurl rocks, and they would hit them in the head and all over the body until they were bruised and bloodied. And the victim would fall down because they couldn't stand any longer. And so Paul is stoned. He's critically injured. He's likely unconscious with ugly wounds. He's bleeding badly. He was so bad off, they thought he was dead. Can you imagine that? He was so... They thought they had done their job. They thought he was dead. And so then they drag him out of the city. I can't imagine that. Watching Paul get dragged out if you're Barnabas or the other disciples and you're watching and you're thinking he's dead because they're just dragging his limp body outside of the city to, to leave him there for carrion or for, 
for wild beasts to, to rip apart. He was taken outside of the city, a common practice for criminals. They would have, they'd leave a body to decompose or to be disposed of because they wouldn't have anything to do with them. And so they drag him out thinking he's dead. But then Luke tells us in verse 20, when the disciples came out to his body, and they probably didn't come out right away. They were probably, they were probably concerned that they too would experience the same fate. And so, but when they came out, they surrounded Paul. All of a sudden, Paul gets up. Now, we don't, we don't know why. We don't know how he got up. We don't know, his, did God resuscitate him? We don't, we don't know that. Luke just kind of says it in passing. Well, when the disciples surrounded him, he got up. Wait a minute, this is a dude who got dragged out because they thought he was dead? And yet now he gets up. And what does he do? He goes back to the city. He goes back to the city. I'm, I'm hoping it was to get medical care and attention. He goes back to the city, and then he goes the next day on to Derby. I was thinking of a story that a guy named David Howard tells in a, in a book called The Power of the Holy Spirit. And he tells an account of a, of a Colombian pastor Pastor Lupercio Taba, I'm probably saying that completely wrong, but Lupercio, he was ministering in a city in Colombia in South America, and one day as he was preaching this man, he appears at the window on the side of the church, and as he missed the preaching, he doesn't see him at first, the whole congregation can see this man, and so they all see him, and they all duck, they get under the, the chairs, they're hiding, he looks over, he sees this guy, this guy says, stop preaching or I'll shoot you, and he keeps preaching. And so this guy shoots through the window and one bullet misses one side of his head and he shoots again, another bullet misses the other side of his head and he shoots a third time and one goes on one side of his body, he shoots a fourth time, one goes on the other side of his body. All, all four bullets are right behind the guy, lodged in the wall. And the guy, the, assassin, the would-be assassin, doesn't know what to do, doesn't understand why he didn't hit this guy and so he drops his gun and he, he runs out. And uh, Lupercio, he, he kept preaching. He wasn't stopped from preaching the good news. He wasn't daunted in the face of death and danger. Nothing kept the Apostle Paul from preaching either. Even though the stones hit him and likely maimed him, his life was miraculously spared. He likely bore those scars for the rest of his life. But he was living boldly for God's glory no matter what the cost. He was undaunted by his brutal stone. He was undaunted by opposition. He went, and then what does he do in the nearby town of Derby? These Jews, they just came down to Lystra. Derby's not very far away. It was, a, it was a, probably an hour walk away. He goes right to Derby and starts preaching all over again. Paul's nuts. And then Luke writes matter-of-factly, he goes back after Derby, after some converts were won in, in Derby. Where does he say he goes back? Look down your Bibles. Just look, look for a moment. It's pretty astounding. He says, matter of factly, well, they go back to, to Lystra. He was just stoned in Lystra. They go back to Lystra, and he goes back to Iconium, where the Jews wanted to stone him, where the Jews came from that stoned him in Lystra. They came from Iconium, so he goes to Lystra. He goes to Iconium, and then he goes back to Basidian Antioch. He would have been well-known in those towns. He would have been recognized in those towns. The crowds came out to see him. But they return, and that's pretty astounding, isn't it? You see, he was living for something bigger than just himself. He realized that God had not only called him to live on mission, but he called him to live for something greater, for God's own glory. Why in the world did they go back? I think they understood the good news they'd received themselves personally. 
No one would have faulted them if they went elsewhere preaching the gospel and if they went back to their sending church in Antioch, everybody would have understood, but not Paul. He was, he was had a God-given vision and he was on a God-given mission. Church, this isn't just for that day. We have a God-given vision for this church. We're not done yet. Our church might have faced difficulties and, and distressing times. We might face opposition. You might be personally facing opposition and difficulties. God's not done with you and with me. He's not done with our church. He's called us to a vision. He's called us to exalt Jesus Christ in the upstate. He's called us to give glory to God in, the, in, in, this, in this region he's given us, where he's placed us divinely, sovereignly. He's He's placed us in Greenville and Anderson and the cities around. He's called us to this this area to exalt Jesus Christ by by a gospel-centered worship, by gospel-centered living, by gospel-centered mission. That's what he's called us to. We're not done. God's given us a great and compelling vision. The question is, do you, do, you, do you know that? Do you see that? Are you living for that? Do you see that being a part of this church, being a part of the church, it's, it's not just something you attend on Sunday mornings, but we're meant to, to carry out the mission that God has for us. We're meant to live with this single-minded vision of exalting Jesus Christ. And we do that through our worship, through our community, and through our mission. When we come on Sunday morning, we're exalting Jesus Christ in how we worship and whether we're preparing for worship or not. When we're in our communities, when we're in small groups, why we have small groups, why we're excited about small groups, why we're reaching out in missional communities, because we see that this is how we can exalt Jesus Christ in relationships, and the world might see that we're different. And then not only that, we have an opportunity of of carrying out a mission to live actively as disciples of Jesus Christ to continually seek to be who he's made us, to be disciples. It's an active thing. He's made us disciples of Jesus Christ, but are we seeking continually to be who he's made us? And then we have this mission not only to be disciples, but to grow. That's, that's why I'm excited about our local church. And, and then we have a, a mission not only to, to be disciples and to grow and to be insular, we, we have a mission to, to go and to carry out this good news. And it's the same Vision, the same mission that Paul and Barnabas had. Not only that, though, we see that Luke is showing us that Paul didn't live for himself. He cared for God's people. He cared for the church. And this, this third, this final principle that Luke shows us from verse 22 onwards, really, it's, it's that followers of Jesus care for God's people. I could have said followers of Jesus care for the church. This really would have been the same thing. Followers of Jesus care for God's people. It's one of the marks of followers of Jesus Christ that he's given them a burden for the church, a burden for the bride of Christ. Look in verse 22, if you will, in your Bibles, please. To strengthen the souls. What does he, why, did he go, why did he go back to all these places? He had a purpose. He cared about God's people. He cared about the church. He cared about establishing local churches in places where there were none. And so it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And listen, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. He was motivated to return to these cities to do a few things. One, he was establishing churches. He was caring for God's people. 
And, and if you care about the mission that God has given to you, if you care that Jesus has made you alive, then one of the, the marks of that is you care about God's people. You care about the church. And you'll be seeking to do some of the same things, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them. And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're returning to strengthen the soul's disciple. They were encouraging them to continue in the faith. Something interesting here says they were encouraging them to continue in the faith by saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's encouraging, Paul. Thanks for that encouragement. And that word for tribulation that Luke uses, it, it literally means a pressing together, a, a putting pressure on. It was a, a metaphor for oppression, for distress, for affliction, for tribulation. Just think for a moment. If somebody came to our church and said, you know what, let me encourage you, church. Let me encourage you, continue in the faith, because you're going to, con- you're gonna, you're gonna go through a lot of tribulations. And it's through tribulations you have to enter the kingdom of God. I think you might scratch your head for a moment. Telling somebody you have to go through distress or, or tribulation or affliction or oppression, it's, it's not something you might think of as encouraging off the bat, but it really is encouraging. And it's encouraging because the Bible is not writing to a fictional audience. You see, this is real life. And in real life, you have problems. In real life, there's afflictions. In real life, there's distress and opposition. And I'm guessing that some of you experience that, right? How many people experience distress, opposition, affliction in some way? In some way. How many of you experience distress or opposition or affliction? The rest are lying. Excellent. Um, (laughs) This is encouraging because the Bible is not painting a false picture of life. And it's not painting a false picture of the Christian life. What it's saying is that, yes, you will experience tribulation. But that's not a sign that Jesus doesn't love you. You see, Jesus went through tribulation, distress, and suffering to accomplish his Father's will, and, and so will we as his disciples. We're going to go through tribulation as a path to the kingdom of God. And why is this encouraging? It's encouraging because otherwise we might be surprised if we think that becoming a Christian means I'll no longer experience bad things, and we have this kind of messed up Christian karma view of things where we think that if we only do what's right, if we honor God, if we live the right way, if we raise our kids the right way, if we you know, dress the Christian way, whatever that's supposed to be, if we talk to Christianese, if we do all these things, if we read our Bible every day, that somehow that means that we won't encounter difficulties or tribulation or dis- distress or oppression. Why is this encouraging? Because it's saying that's just not true. The hope that we have is greater than some fickle hope that depends on our performance. We have a true and lasting hope that you undergo oppression and affliction and distress and torment, but it's not a sign that God's forsaken you. That's we're entering the kingdom of God. We're doesn't mean you're doing the wrong things necessarily. It's not that God's punishing you. You know, we can think that if we're faithful to our mission as a church, that things are going well from our church. You know, maybe if, we, if we're doing what we're supposed to be as a church, then we're just going to explode. We're going to, maybe not. But it's not a sign that God's displeased with us. It's not a sign that something is wrong. It's not the Bible's message. The message of the Bible is that we don't have to fear even when we encounter tribulation and difficulty because we're going to be entering the kingdom of God 
we have a surety. We have a hope. Mess the Bible is what, that no matter what distress or nakedness, I love it in, in Romans, it, it talks about nothing will separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Neither nakedness, nor peril, nor sword, nor evil of any kind, nor people. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. So what it's saying is really Paul saying the same thing here. We can have confidence that you're going to experience tribulation. That has nothing to do with God's love for you. Nothing's going to separate you from the love of Jesus. You, that's encouraging. Because it's real life. Real life is hard. Maybe you have somebody you love who is opposing you because you become a Christian. Maybe you have classmates who make fun of you because you're a Christian. Maybe you have coworkers who don't like you or a boss who actually is keeping you back because he hates Christianity. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's good news. It's good news for real life. The path of tribulation is the path in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean we go looking for tribulation, but it does mean that we can be sure that when we endure tribulation for his name's sake and for the gospel, we can be sure that's a sign that God's at work and he's, he's reserved us for his kingdom and that we're living for him. It's a sign and it should give us confidence that ultimately will prevail in his kingdom. Paul didn't get stoned by the people because God was displeased with him. You know, Paul didn't make a mistake. That's not why he got stoned. It wasn't because Jesus didn't love him because he was punishing him. He was tortured by stoning within an inch of his life because it was part of God's plan for him to enter the kingdom of God. You know, I bet Paul grew as a disciple as a result of Jesus, of Jesus as a result of being stoned. But he had a deeper relationship with God. But he trusted in God more. But he saw that God was in control of his life. And, and not any man or any lynch mob could take his life. And ultimately his life was in God's hands. Ultimately man could only kill him. But that was in God's control too. Nobody could take his soul. No matter what people do to you. No one can take your soul. No one can take you out of God's hand. Suffering and tribulation. I know my own life. They've had a way of. Of, of purifying my own faith and strengthening my faith in God on the end. And I've gone through the minor difficulties in life that I've gone through. I've gone through extremely minor difficulties compared to this. But each of those times, like I can say, hasn't God been good? He's, he's sustained us. He has preserved us. He has kept us in the midst. He has, although we feel like we are beaten down, we are not crushed. Although we are bruised, we are not defeated. Although we are reviled, we're not rejected by him. And we learn about God and his goodness and faithfulness from our low times. And we learn what we're really living for and what we need to give up. We learn that our future in God is secure no matter what might happen. We learn perspective too, don't we? I was talking to, I'm hoping he won't be embarrassed. I didn't ask his permission ahead of time, but I was talking to Boaz Nysong. He went through some physical challenges. Um, he had this unknown thing happening to his skin. It was breaking out everywhere. And I got to be with him and see that God was using that. Now God's healed him now too, but God was using that to glorify him and, and to draw him closer to him. And it's so cool. I encourage you to go talk to Boaz and say, Boaz, how's God used this in your life? You heard testimony of God being at work. And he's testifying that it was good and it was God's timing. And then he learned about God and his care. I think that's still true, right? Excellent.
I hope you don't mind too much, Boaz. You okay? He says okay, so that's good. Now I have his permission after the fact. It's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. Is that, is that bad? <laughs> As disciples of Jesus, we can be encouraged knowing that although we will suffer tribulation, nobody can take our joy away from us. One day, we'll be with Jesus. We can have faith and be encouraged that Jesus has overcome the world. Paul was only telling his disciples what Jesus himself had said and what Paul experienced, that we're gonna, we're gonna enter the kingdom of God through tribulations. And so what do they do? They, they sought to be encouragement. They returned, they, they were seeking to strengthen the souls of the disciples and I, I love this pattern. What, is, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're trying to strengthen the church. They're trying to encourage the church because they cared about God's people because they had been saved, not to themselves, but they had been saved to God's people and they realized that, they got that. You know, God saved us not to some, be independent. He saved us to be a part of his body and the purpose that he's doing. And he saved you, if you're part of this church, to be a part of this church and you have a purpose here. And you, you can encourage this church, you can strengthen this church. And so he is a passion, Paul, not just to preach the gospel and leave people to walk out the Christian life on their own. He's passionate about those local churches and he goes and he helps them establish he sets up pastors. He appoints pastors in the churches. Later in Philippians 7, you'll see that the churches appointed pastors on their own, but they were, they were brand new, and so he gives them leaders to care for them. Because the local churches, they're meant to be a place where care and serving and growing and likeness to Christ, where those things are happening and being worked out on a daily base, basis in the midst of, of the messiness of life. You know, we're, we're far from a perfect church. Sure, we have lots of things we need to grow in, but God has given us a vision for this church, and you're a part of that, to exalt Jesus Christ in the upstate. And to do that in our worship, in our community, in our mission. Don't forget what he's called you to as part of this church. Don't forget that you're on a mission, and it's a glorious one. And it's bigger than just you, and it's worth living for, it's worth dying for. They appoint local elders in every church. They pray, they fast. I want to again commend you. That's not the main idea of this message, but I commend you to fasting and prayer. I commend you to praying for this church. They were praying for the church. They were committed to that. I want to be committed to praying for our church. And then after they were, they prayed, they fasted, they committed them to the Lord in every church, and then their journey was complete. And they go back home to Syria and Antioch. And they tell of all of what God has done about how God opened a door for them to carry out their mission in the face of opposition and tribulation and how God enabled them to live bravely on mission. They were living for God's glory. They were caring for God's people and they were spending their lives for what matters most. What are you caring about? What are you living for? What are you passionate about? Are you passionate about the mission he's called us to? You should be. It's a great one. It's more noble than carrying some dumb ring to some fiery place. He's given us the mission of communicating good news so that people could be raised up to new life and made alive. He's called us to spend our lives on what matters most. There's a quote from, in closing, from Theodore Roosevelt. He gave a speech back in April of 1910. It's still, it's a great speech. I'm not sure if he was a believer, but I think he might have been. 
He said something that was very helpful. He says, it's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again. Because there is not effort without error and shortcomings. But who does actually strive to do the deed? Who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Now, ultimately, we all will know the greatest victory because Christ has won our victory. But may it not be said of us that we are just critics, that we are those who point out where people stumble, that we show that we think we have a gift somehow if we think we can point out where people need to do things better. That's not impressive. Let us be those people who are in the arena that our face is marred by by dust and sweat and blood and we, we strive valiantly. We might err, we might come short, we might fail, but we have a Savior who never did fail, who's made us alive and given us a great and glorious and noble mission to live out. He has overcome so that in Him we are more than conquerors, no matter what happens to us, whether good or bad. And let it never be said that we are, to put it in more biblical terms, that we are tepid, we are lukewarm, lest we be spit out of Jesus' mouth. Let's live striving, striving to live out the mission he's given us because he died and gave us all for us. He set us free so we might live with abandon before him telling everyone the good news about him. Amen? Let's stand for a moment, please, and we'll sing a song. Matt, I'm sure you can figure out something to play. Let's pray for a moment. Father, I pray that we would be compelled not by some wrong thoughts of earning your favor, but we would be compelled by this great mission that you've called us to, that, Lord, you have made us a part of something greater than ourselves. We would be compelled that, Lord, you set your face towards Jerusalem, Lord, counting the cost, and, Lord, you endured shame and suffering in our place so that we no longer have to bear any shame or suffering. And, Lord, let that message be one that we declare with our mouths and with our actions, Lord. And let us be inspired to say, we've got to tell everybody about this because this is what our life is about. And Lord, let us draw glory and attention to you. In your name we pray, amen.